Chapter 5 of the Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America. 1638-1870 by W. E. B. Du Bois Chapter 5 The Period of the Revolution, 1774-1787 The Situation in 1774 In the individual efforts of the various colonies to suppress the African slave trade, there may be traced certain general movements. First, from 1638 to 1664, there was a tendency to take a high moral stand against the traffic. This is illustrated in the laws of New England, in the plans for the settlement of Delaware and, later, that of Georgia, and in the protest of the German friends. The second period, from about 1664 to 1760, has no general unity, but is marked by statutes laying duties varying in design from encouragement to absolute prohibition, by some cases of moral opposition, and by the slow but steady growth of a spirit unfavorable to the long continuance of the trade. The last colonial period, from about 1760 to 1787, is one of pronounced effort to regulate, limit, or totally prohibit the traffic. Beside these general movements, there are many waves of legislation easily distinguishable, which rolled over several or all of the colonies at various times, such as the series of high duties following the asiento, and the acts inspired by various negro plots. Notwithstanding this, the laws of the colonies before 1774 had no national unity, the peculiar circumstances of each colony determining its legislation. With the outbreak of the revolution came unison in action with regard to the slave trade, as with regard to other matters, which may justly be called national. It was, of course, a critical period, a period when, in the rapid upheaval of a few years, the complicated and diverse forces of decades meet, combine, act, and react, until the resultant seems almost the work of chance. In the settlement of the fate of slavery and the slave trade, however, the real crisis came in the calm that succeeded the storm, in that day when, in the opinion of most men, the question seemed already settled. And indeed it needed an exceptionally clear and discerning mind, in 1787, to deny that slavery and the slave trade in the United States of America were doomed to early annihilation. It seemed certainly a legitimate deduction from the history of the preceding century to conclude that, as the system had risen, flourished, and fallen in Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania, and as South Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland were apparently following in the same legislative path, the next generation would in all probability witnessed the last rows of the system on our soil. To be sure, the problem had its uncertain quantities. 
the motives of the lawmakers in South Carolina and Pennsylvania were dangerously different. The century of industrial expansion was slowly dawning and awakening the vast economic revolution in which American slavery was to play so prominent and fatal a role. And finally, there were already in the South faint signs of a change in moral attitude toward slavery, which would no longer regard the system as a temporary makeshift, but rather as a permanent, though perhaps unfortunate, necessity. With regard to the slave trade, however, there appeared to be substantial unity of opinion, and there were, in 1787, few things to indicate that a cargo of 500 African slaves would openly be landed in Georgia in 1860. The Condition of the Slave Trade In 1760, England, the chief slave-trading nation, was sending on an average to Africa 160 ships annually, with a tonnage of 18,000 tons, carrying exports to the value of 163,818 pounds. Only about 20 of these ships regularly returned to England. Most of them carried slaves to the West Indies and returned laden with sugar and other products. Thus may be formed some idea of the size and importance of the slave trade at that time. Although for a complete view we must add to this the trade under the French, Portuguese, Dutch, and Americans. The trade fell off somewhat towards 1770, but was flourishing again when the revolution brought a sharp and serious check upon it, bringing down the number of English slavers clearing from 167 in 1774 to 28 in 1779, and the tonnage from 17,218 to 3,475 tons. After the war, the trade gradually recovered, and by 1786 had reached nearly its former extent. In 1783, the British West Indies received 16,208 Negroes from Africa, and by 1787, the importation had increased to 21,023. In this latter year, it was estimated that the British were taken annually from Africa 38,000 slaves, the French 20,000, the Portuguese 10,000, the Dutch and Danes 6,000, a total of 74,000. Manchester alone sent 180,000 pounds annually in goods to Africa in exchange for Negroes. The Slave Trade and the Association At the outbreak of the revolution, six main reasons, some of which were old and of slow growth, others peculiar to the abnormal situation of that time, led to concerted action against the slave trade. The first reason was the economic failure of slavery in the Middle and Eastern colonies. This gave rise to the presumption that like failure awaited the institution in the South. Secondly, the new philosophy of freedom and the rights of man, which formed the cornerstone of the revolution, made the dullest realize that, at the very least, the slave trade and a struggle for liberty were not consistent. Thirdly, the old fears of slave insurrections which had long played so prominent a part in legislation, 
now gained new power from the imminence of war and from the well-founded fear that the british might incite servile uprisings fourthly nearly all the american slave markets were in 1774 to 1775 overstocked with slaves and consequently many of the strongest partisans of the system were bulls on the market and desired to raise the value of their slave by at least a temporary stoppage of the trade fifthly since the vested interests of the slave trade and merchants were liable to be swept away by the opening of hostilities and since the price of slaves was low there was from this quarter little active opposition to a cessation of the trade for a season finally it was long a favorite belief of the supporters of the revolution that as english exploitation of colonial resources had caused the quarrel the best weapon to bring england to terms was the economic expedient of stopping all commercial intercourse with her since then the slave trade had ever formed an important part of her colonial traffic it was one of the first branches of commerce which occurred to the colonists as especially suited to their ends such were the complicated moral political and economic motives which underlay the first national action against the slave trade this action was taken by the association a union of the colonies entered into to enforce the policy of stopping commercial intercourse with england the movement was not a great moral protest against an iniquitous traffic although it had undoubtedly a strong moral backing it was primarily a temporary war measure the action of the colonies the earlier and largely abortive attempts to form non-intercourse associations generally did not mention slaves specifically although the virginia house of burgesses may eleventh seventeen sixty nine recommended to merchants and traders among other things to agree that they will not import any slaves or purchase any imported after the first day of november next until the said acts are repealed later in seventeen seventy four when a faneuil hall meeting started the first successful national attempt at non-intercourse the slave trade being at the time especially flourishing received more attention even then slaves were specifically mentioned in the resolution of but three states rhode island recommended a stoppage of all trade with great britain ireland africa and the west indies north carolina in august seventeen seventy four resolved in convention that we will not import any slave or slaves or purchase any slave or slaves imported or brought into this province by others from any part of the world after the first day of november next virginia gave the slave trade especial prominence and was in reality the leading spirit to force her views on the continental congress the county conventions of that colony first took up the subject fairfax county thought that during our present difficulties and distress no slaves ought to be imported and said we take this opportunity of declaring our most earnest wishes 
to see an entire stock forever put to such a wicked cruel and unnatural trade prince george and nansemond counties resolved that the african trade is injurious to this colony obstructs the population of it by freemen prevent manufacturers and other useful immigrants from europe from settling amongst us and occasions an annual increase of the balance of trade against this colony the virginia colonial convention august seventeen seventy four also declared we will neither ourselves import nor purchase any slave or slaves imported by any other person after the first day of november next either from africa the west indies or any other place in south carolina at the convention july sixth seventeen seventy four decided opposition to the non-importation scheme was manifested though how much this was due to the slave trade interest is not certain many of the delegates wished at least to limit the power of their representatives and the charleston chamber of commerce flatly opposed the plan of an association finally however delegates with full powers were sent to congress the arguments leading to this step were not in all cases on the score of patriotism a charleston manifesto argued the planters are greatly in arrears to the merchants a stoppage of importation would give them all an opportunity to extricate themselves from debt the merchants would have time to settle their accounts and be ready with the return of liberty to renew trade the action of the continental congress the first continental congress met september five seventeen seventy four and on september twenty second recommended merchants to send no more orders for foreign goods on september twenty seven mr lee made a motion for a non-importation and it was unanimously resolved to import no goods from great britain after december one seventeen seventy four afterward ireland and the west indies were also included and a committee consisting of low of new york mifflin of pennsylvania lee of virginia and johnson of connecticut were appointed to bring in a plan for carrying into effect the non-importation non-consumption and non-exportation resolved on the next move was to instruct this committee to include in the proscribed articles among other things molasses coffee or pimento from the british plantations or from dominica a motion which cut deep into the slave trade circle of commerce and aroused some opposition will can the people bear a total interruption of the west india trade asked low of new york can they live without rum sugar and molasses will not this impatience and vexation defeat the measure the committee finally reported october twelfth seventeen seventy four and after three days discussion and amendment the proposal passed this document after a recital of grievances declared that in the opinion of the colonists a non-importation agreement would best secure redress goods from great britain ireland and east and west indies 
and Dominica were excluded, and it was resolved that we will neither import nor purchase any slave imported after the first day of December next, after which time we will wholly discontinue the slave trade, and will neither be concerned in it ourselves, nor will we hire our vessels, nor sell our commodities or manufactures to those who are concerned in it. Strong and straightforward as this resolution was, time unfortunately proved that it meant very little. Two years later, in this same Congress, a decided opposition was manifested to Brandon the slave trade as inhuman, and it was thirteen years before South Carolina stopped the slave trade, or Massachusetts prohibited her citizens from engaging in it. The passing of so strong a resolution must be explained by the motives before given, by the character of the drafting committee, by the desire of America in this crisis to appear well before the world, and by the natural moral enthusiasm aroused by the imminence of a great national struggle. Reception of the Slave Trade Resolution the unanimity with which the colonists received this association is not perhaps as remarkable as the almost entire absence of comment on the radical slave trade clause. A Connecticut town meeting in December 1774 noted, with singular pleasure, the second article of the association, in which it is agreed to import no more Negro slaves. This comment appears to have been almost the only one. There were in various places some evidence of disapproval, but only in the state of Georgia was this widespread and determined, and based mainly on the slave trade clause. This opposition delayed the ratification meeting until January 18, 1775, and then delegates from but five of the twelve parishes appeared and many of these had strong instructions against the approval of the plan. Before this meeting could act, the governor adjourned it, on the ground that it did not represent the province. Some of the delegates signed an agreement, one article of which promised to stop the importation of slaves March 15, 1775, i.e. four months later than the National Association had directed. This was not, of course, binding on the province, and although a town like Darien might declare our disapprobation and abhorrence of the unnatural practice of slavery in America, yet the powerful influence of Savannah was not likely soon to give matters a favorable turn. The importers were mostly against any interruption, and the consumers were much divided. Thus the efforts of this assembly failed, the resolution being almost unknown, and as a gentleman writes, I hope for the honor of the province ever will remain so. The delegates of the Continental Congress selected by this rump assembly refused to take their seats. Meantime South Carolina stopped trade with Georgia, because it hath not acceded to the Continental Association and the single Georgia parish of St. John's appealed to the Second Continental Congress to accept it from the general boycott of the colony. 
this county had already resolved not to purchase any slave imported at savannah large numbers of which we understand are there expected till the sense of congress shall be made known to us may seventeenth seventeen seventy five congress resolved unanimously that all exportation to quebec nova scotia the island of st john's newfoundland georgia except the parish of st john's and to east and west florida immediately cease these measures brought the refractory colony to terms and the provisional congress july fourth seventeen seventy five finally adopted the association and resolved among other things that we will neither import or purchase any slave imported from africa or elsewhere after this day the non-importation agreement was in the beginning at least well enforced by the voluntary action of the loosely federated nation the slave trade clause seems in most states to have been observed with the others in south carolina a cargo of near three hundred slaves was sent out of the colony by the co-signee as being interdicted by the second article of the association in virginia the vigilance committee of norfolk hold up for your just indignation mr john brown merchant of this place who has several times imported slaves from jamaica and he is thus publicly censured to the end that all such foes of the rights of british america may be publicly known as the enemies of american liberty and that every person may henceforth break off all dealings with him results of the resolution the strain of war at last proved too much for this voluntary blockade and after some hesitancy congress april third seventeen seventy six resolved to allow the importation of articles not the growth or manufacture of great britain except tea they also voted that no slaves be imported into any of the thirteen united colonies this marks a noticeable change of attitude from the strong words of two years previous the former was a definitive promise this is a temporary resolve which probably represented public opinion much better than the former on the whole the conclusion is inevitably forced on the student of this first national movement against the slave trade that its influence on the trade was but temporary and insignificant and that at the end of the experiment the outlook for the final suppression of the trade was little brighter than before the whole movement served as a sort of social test of the power and importance of the slave trade which proved to be far more powerful than the platitudes of many of the revolutionists had assumed the effect of the movement on the slave trade in general was to begin possibly a little earlier than otherwise would have been the case that temporary breaking up of the trade which the war naturally caused there was a time during the late war says clarkson when the slave trade may be considered as having been nearly abolished the prices of slaves rose correspondingly high so that smugglers made fortunes 
it is stated that in the years 1772 to 1778, slave merchants of Liverpool failed for the sum of 710,000 pounds. All this, of course, might have resulted from the war without the association, but in the long run the association aided in frustrating the very designs which the framers of the first resolve had in mind, for the temporary stoppage in the end created an extraordinary demand for slaves, and led to a slave trade after the war nearly as large as that before. The Slave Trade and Public Opinion After the War The Declaration of Independence showed a significant drift of public opinion from the firm stand taken in the Association Resolutions. The clique of political philosophers to which Jefferson belonged never imagined the continued existence of the country with slavery. It is well known that the first draft of the Declaration contained a severe arraignment of Great Britain as the real promoter of slavery and the slave trade in America. In it, the king was charged with waging cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this exacerbable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us, and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he also obtruded them thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. To this radical and not strictly truthful statement, even the large influence of the Virginia leaders could not gain the assent of the delegates in Congress. The Afatus of 1774 was rapidly subsiding and changing economic conditions had already led many to look forward to a day when the slave trade could successfully be reopened. More important than this, the nation as a whole was even less inclined now than in 1774 to denounce the slave trade uncompromisingly. Jefferson himself says that this clause was struck out in complaisance to South Carolina and Georgia, who had never attempted to restrain the importation of slaves, and who, on the contrary, still wished to continue it. Our northern brethren also, I believe, said he, felt a little tender under those censures, for though their people had very few slaves themselves, 
yet they had been pretty considerable carriers of them to others. As the war slowly dragged itself to a close, it became increasingly evident that a firm moral stand against slavery and the slave trade was not a probability. The reaction which naturally follows a period of prolonged and exhausting strife for high political principle now set in. The economic forces of the country, which had suffered most, sought to recover and rearrange themselves, and all the selfish motives that impelled a bankrupt nation to seek to gain its daily bread did not long hesitate to demand a reopening of the profitable African slave trade. This demand was especially urgent from the fact that the slaves, by pillage, flight, and actual fighting, had become so reduced in numbers during the war that an urgent demand for more laborers was felt in the South. Nevertheless, the revival of the trade was naturally a matter of some difficulty, as the West India circuit had been cut off, leaving no resort except the contraband traffic and the direct African trade. The English slave trade after the peace returned to its former state and was by 1784 sending 20,000 slaves annually to the West Indies. Just how large the trade to the continent was at this time there are few means of ascertaining. It is certain that there was a general reopening of the trade in the Carolinas and Georgia and that the New England traders participated in it. This traffic undoubtedly reached considerable proportions, and through the direct African trade and the illicit West India trade many thousands of Negroes came into the United States during the years 1783 to 1787. Meantime, there was slowly arising a significant divergence of opinion on the subject. Probably the whole country still regarded both slavery and the slave trade as temporary, but the middle states expected to see the abolition of both within a generation, while the South scarcely thought it probable to prohibit even the slave trade in that short time. Such a difference might, in all probability, have been satisfactorily adjusted if both parties had recognized the real gravity of the matter. As it was, both regarded it as a problem of secondary importance, to be solved after many other more pressing ones had been disposed of. The anti-slavery man had seen slavery die in their own communities and expected it to die the same way in others with as little active effort on their own part. The southern planters, born and reared in a slave system, thought that some day the system might change and possibly disappear, but active effort to this end on their part was ever farthest from their thoughts. Here then began that fatal policy towards slavery and the slave trade that characterized the nation for three-quarters of a century, the policy of laissez-faire, laissez-passer. The Action of the Confederation The slave trade was hardly touched upon in the Congress of the Confederation, except in the ordinance respecting the capture of slaves and on the occasion of the Quaker petition against the trade. 
although during the debate on the Articles of Confederation, the counting of slaves as well as of freemen in the appropriation of taxes was urged as a measure that would check further importation of Negroes. It is our duty, said Wilson of Pennsylvania, to lay every discouragement on the importation of slaves, but this amendment, i.e. to count two slaves as one freeman, would give the just trium liberorum to him who would import slaves. The matter was finally compromised by apportioning requisitions according to the value of land and buildings. After the article went into operation, an ordinance in regard to the recapture of fugitive slaves provided that, if the capture was made on the sea below high-water mark, and the Negro was not claimed, he should be freed. Matthews of South Carolina demanded the yeas and nays on this proposition, with the result that only the vote of his state was recorded against it. On Tuesday, October 3, 1783, a deputation from the yearly meeting of the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware Friends asked leave to present a petition. Leave was granted the following day, but no further minute appears. According to the report of the Friends, the petition was against the slave trade, and, though the Christian restitute of the concern was by the delegates generally acknowledged, yet not being vested with the power of legislation, they declined promoting any public remedy against the gross national inequity of trafficking in the persons of fellow men. The only legislative activity in regard to the trade during the Confederation was taken by the individual states. Before 1778, Connecticut, Vermont, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia had by law stopped the further importation of slaves, and importation had practically ceased in all the New England and Middle States, including Maryland. In consequence of the revival of the slave trade after the war, there was then a lull in state activity until 1786, when North Carolina laid a prohibitive duty, and South Carolina a year later began her series of temporary prohibitions. In 1787 to 1788, the New England states forbade the participation of their citizens in the traffic. It was this wave of legislation against the traffic which did so much to blind the nation as to the stronghold which slavery still had on the country. End of chapter 5